All right, if you would grab your Bibles or grab a pew Bible if you want. There's one that looks just like this in front of you. And turn to, <coughs> excuse me, uh, turn to page 146. We will be looking at Deuteronomy chapter 2 this morning. We are in a series. Um, we're in a year. <laughs> uh, we are calling God first. And that is the focus of this year. Um, how do we put God first in our, everything that we do, everything we say, everything we think about, everything that we are? And the place where I think we really get some great insight and in how we can do that is here in the book of Deuteronomy, where, where you have so many instances, uh, and in, in fact, the place we're at right now at the beginning of the book of Moses saying, hey, remember how terribly we failed at putting God first in the past. And so he's retelling some of these stories so that we can remember where we, where we messed up, where we failed, so we don't mess up or fail in the same way again. And we're going to start with one of the most heartbreaking pieces of scripture here in chapter 2, verse 1, and it says this. I think I even have a, yes, there you go. It says this. Then we turned and journeyed into the wilderness in the direction of the Red Sea. As the Lord told me, oh, there was no reaction at all to that. Shame on all of you. This is tragic. What is this following? Deliverance. Yes, right? Deliverance. What is God saying here? God is saying, hey, remember, remember all that I did for you. Go back. Go back. They're all the way here, right? This is the promised land. This is the area that God had promised to Abraham. He said, hey, listen, in some generations, I'm going to give you and your offspring, which are going to become a great nation, a great people, many people, I'm going to give you a good land, land flowing with milk and honey and pizza and coffee and, and, and cookie bars and all kinds of wonderful things. I'm going to give it to you, rivers of this stuff. And Abraham's family expands and it grows great and they end up down in Egypt and because they're so expansive, because they're so great, the Egyptians fear their great numbers and the Egyptians say, we gotta make slaves, we gotta keep, we gotta oppress this people, otherwise they might take over, there's so many of them. And God, after 400 years, hears the cries of his people and, and he lays waste to Egypt with 10 massive plagues. And of course, you know the story very well. And they're, they're on the way out of Egypt and they're coming to the Red Sea. They're coming out of Egypt and, and toward the Red Sea. And Pharaoh changes his mind and he sends his armies. You've seen this movie, read this story, everybody with me? He sends his armies and they're in chariots, you know. Chariot-like, that's my motion for chariot. And they're charioting toward all of these. I mean, you can imagine what these Israelites, I mean, they were slaves. What are they wearing Rags? I mean, they're, they're, they probably don't even have shoes on their feet. And, and they're, they're being chased down by this army, the most elite army of tanks and I don't know anything else. What's army stuff today? Helicopters? Give me some. Where are some kids? Zach? What? Smart bobs, yeah, I don't know. They're being chased by all of this awesome, this awesome military. And they end up at the Red Sea. And God does what? He parts it. He sets it open, and boom, there's like this. And they're standing now, and they pass through on dry ground. And this, this becomes like the vision for God's deliverance. Whenever God delivers later in the future, he's going to be, man, it's just like that. 
And it feels like that. Have you ever felt like God has like really saved you from something? Maybe a bad decision. As I was backing out this morning, I just gunned it because, you know, it's six on a Sunday morning. I'm the only fool that's up, right? So, and it, Jesus, okay, all right. Easy with the Sunday school answers there. And my, my, my family's here, my grandma and my sister are here, and I almost just collided right into there, just like slammed in their car. I hit the brakes like this far away from it, and I was like, thank you, Jesus. Right? <laughs> Felt like Red Sea moment. That was not, you know, the same thing, but I thought I'd share that little detail of foolishness. Anyway, God saves them, and they pass through this Red Sea, and what did we just read? God says, guess what? Head back there. Head back there. Now, why did that happen? That happened because they went, to the, they went to, the, to the area of Canaan. Boy, I'm having issues with this. They got here, and they faced mighty cities full of amazing, mighty warriors, right? Those mighty warriors, the descendants of the Nephilim, strong and mighty. So you're not just facing one Conan the Barbarian. You are facing like 10,000 Conan the Barbarians, and that's scary, understandably so. Turn that off so we can get back on track here. <laughs> so the text tells us we turned and we went back to the Red Sea. That's heartbreaking, man. You ever heard this phrase, two step forward, one step back? You ever do that? <laughs> Feel like you're doing that today? The two steps forward, one step back. This is, this is the same thing, and it is, it is heartbreaking. Now, remember what caused this. What caused this? Do you remember from last week? You all participated in it. Disobedience, stiffening, no, 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 close, no cigar. But I heard it. Yeah, give me some murmurs. Yeah, they're in their tents murmuring, right? They're in their tents saying, man, did you see those guys? That's going to be hard. And they're right. They're right. God did not set an easy path before them. And here's a good bit of truth. If you are somebody that God has chosen to do something great, it's not an easy path. It's not an easy path. Difficulty, trials, tribulations, these things will face you. I was struck, I just struck all week by this. Their sin was murmuring in their tents complaining in their tents. And then you know how the story went. We talked a little bit about this. They, they, when God says, fine, you're gonna murmur, you're gonna complain in your tents, forget it. I take it back. Guys, go back to the Red Sea. They're like, wait a second, hold on. We were just murmuring. You're taking murmuring way too seriously. We're just complaining. How many of you complain more than you ought? I love that my little sister's hand was the first one to go up in this room. That was wonderful. Yeah, I, we all do this, right? We complain, things get tough, and we whine, and we complain about it. And God took that so seriously. He took their irreverence so seriously, he rescinded the promise for 40 years. That's hardcore. Do we take God seriously enough? I was struck kind of by this whole story, and then uh, a piece of uh, a book that I'm reading I want to give you a little, little snippet of it because I think it has a big deal of play here in what we're talking about. 
The author, uh, David Bentley Hart, says this here, and so here he means sort of like our modern culture, our modern cultural climate. One may cultivate a private atmosphere of spirituality as undemanding and therapeutically comforting as one likes by purchasing a dream catcher, a few petty crystals, some books on the goddess, whatever Oprah's hawking these days. That's me, not him. Until this mounting codgery of string, worthless quartz, baked clay, kitsch, borrowed iconography like the, the little Buddhas. You can go to Target and buy a Buddha and put it in your house. That's somebody's religion, man. Like, it's not a decoration. Or you can go down to the studio, the studio and practice yoga. That's somebody's religion, right? Or you can take and go to Target and buy a cross, And put that on your wall too. Borrowed iconography until all the fraudulent scholarship reaches that mysterious point of saturation. At which point, religion becomes indistinguishable from interior decorating. How many of you have spent more time interior decorating your Christianity than living it? How much have I? Then, one can either abandon one's gods for something else or abide with them for a time. But whether you stay or whether you go, without any real reverence, love, or dread. And that quote just struck me this week. Because if there's one thing that we kind of see coming out of the Israelites, it is a lack of reverence, it is a lack of love, and to their their eternal pain, dread. That's heavy stuff. But I feel like this is a very astute observation of our culture, but also church culture, Christian culture. What does religion even mean? What does God even mean? Why do you you use these words? What do these words mean? We sing these songs. What do these these songs mean? What do they mean tomorrow and Tuesday and Wednesday? And what do they mean? What do they mean? Because I, I have a feeling that I have a feeling that we mean when we say God, kind of what Oprah means when she says God, and that is I'm being mean to Oprah today, and there's no particular reason for that, other than she was in the news this week. But I think she's a perfect cultural icon. For our moment, because she uses the word God all of the time. And what she means by that is the thing that makes me feel happy. And, and, and it's fine to feel happy. It's fine to be happy. But that's not the same thing as, as God. I was thinking about this love bit too. You know, I, I love my wife. Wives, does that have to mean something? Does that have to mean I feel something? Does that mean I have to do something? And does it mean that, or would you be surprised if my wife says to you one day, I've fallen out of love with him because he just doesn't pay any attention to me at all. He says, I love you and kisses me on the cheek one time a week, maybe twice on his way out the door. And I just, I don't feel anything. Would any of you be surprised if my wife said, man, I don't, I don't, I don't think he loves me. 
Right? In our human experiences, we're, we're, we're totally on board with this. We understand that. In fact, that's sort of grounds for divorce these days. But when, we come, when it comes to God, we come Sunday morning, we kiss him on the cheek, we say, we love you, God, and we head on, right? And this is what the Israelites are doing, and this is why we're pushing so hard with this God-first mentality. Because a real God, right, a fake God, a God of, 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 of wood, or stone, a God who's sort of like in a chiseled masculine form, some voluptuous woman, a God who is sort of this generic universal good that I can call on to give me whatever it is that I need at the particular time that I need it. That kind of God is vacuous, meaningless, non-existent. But a God that is real has to be a God who commands, who critiques, who calls, who condemns. It has to be real and that reality has to have meaning in every day and every thought and every moment of our lives look back a couple of verses hebrews 1 34 i'll just drive this home one more time the lord heard your words and was angered and he swore None of the men of this evil generation shall see the good land that I swore to give to their fathers. How much has God rescinded from us because our words were careless? I was really struck by this. I was drawn this week to reverence, to think, God, I need to revere you more. I need you to put in my, and this has been my prayer this week, I need you to put into my heart and into my life and into my mind and into my emotions and into my words a seriousness about who you are and what you are calling me to because you are holy. We sang the songs, say these songs were, were wonderful and powerful. What a powerful name, what a wonderful name, what a beautiful name. That should draw us to reverence God and not to treat him like kitsch. But there is love in God, an immense capacity for love and faithfulness, which we often do not find in ourselves. Look at verse (coughs) 2. Excuse me, I can't shake this cough. Um, Look at verse 2. Then the Lord said, To me, you have been traveling around this mountain country long enough. Turn northward. Again, you guys are just terrible at responding to awesome lines today. (laughs) Go back to the Red Sea and you go, nothing. Go back to the, let's let's practice. Go back to the Red Sea. Uh, uh, Somebody said, yes, you have missed the boat. (laughs) uh, Turn northward. Yay, right? This is good news. I think I've got a map. I don't have a map. I do have a map. Good. The Israelites, so we've cut off the bottom half. The Israelites are like way over here. They've gone back to the red. Hey, and there's a bat. That works perfectly. There's a baptismal right there. There's water there, for those of you who don't know. Uh, They go back toward the Red Sea, and they've been wandering around this wilderness, and God says, you know what? It's done. Go north. Go back toward the land that have promised the land that is full of milk and honey and pizza and coffee and cookie bars, right? Go back toward that goodness because we read over and over again in the scriptures that God does not correct in judgment or in anger because if he did, we'd be reduced to nothing. 
The psalm I read this morning, uh, Psalm 130, uh, 130, verse 9, says, He will not always chide. He will not always discipline. Nor will he keep his anger forever. And I love this, because how many of y'all are guilty of holding grudges? God doesn't hold grudges. It doesn't matter today how deeply you have betrayed him. It doesn't matter if you were, were, were a totally committed Christian and then you said, you know what, forget it. I don't want to follow you anymore. It doesn't matter what you have done, how you have walked away, how much you have betrayed him. God does not hold grudges. He is saying to you today, mercy is available. That's good news. He will not hold on to all of that stuff. In fact, we read from that same psalm this morning, as far as east is from west, he separates you from your betrayal of him, from your sin. He separates all of that because his love is so deep and so consuming that he goes to the cross for his enemies. He goes to the cross for those who reject him. He goes to the cross for you and for me so that we have the opportunity to receive the mercy we don't deserve. So not only should we have this deep reverence for God, but you should have an emotive expression of love toward God too because there is nothing greater than that. That God forgives and sets aside all of our sins. We see then God moving forward in this story. and In fact, in chapter 2 through chapter 3, verse 22, if you kind of are looking at your scriptures there, we're not going to read that whole chunk because that's a big chunk, but... That whole section is the story of Israel moving from the, the, the south up through the north and getting positioned to enter into the promised land. And then we'll move into sort of the series. So I'll give you this right here. If you got your cell phone, you take a picture and, and, and read back through. The first three that they come to, Edom, Moab, and Ammon, and you can see those here, Edom, Moab, and Ammon. So they're heading north. These are territories that God has not given to the Israelites. And so he says, leave them alone. Then he moves into the kingdom of Sihon and Og of Bashan, the area of the Amorites right here. This is area that God is going to give the Israelites in the area of great and grievous wickedness. So as we uh, look at this text here, um, each one of these little sections in this whole chunk has these five characteristics. First, Israel's going to continue on their journey. Now he's going to say, go into Edom. Now go into Moab. Now go into Ammon. God's going to command Moses what to do. Now go into Edom and buy provisions. When you're passing through Edom, leave them alone. You aren't allowed to touch them. You aren't allowed to do war with them. When you stop off at the exit and eat at the Waffle House, tip well, because they live off those tips. You should always tip well at Waffle House. Same thing for Moab, same thing for Adam, Ammon, uh, get the provisions. So then we'll have, you know, then they'll depart Edom, then they depart Moab, then they depart Ammon. And then we get to these two bad dudes right here. So I'll put the map up one more time. This section of the Amorites. And this brings us into a question of dread. Because God's word to the Israelites as they move toward these two kingdoms is Utterly destroy them. Utterly destroy them. Now this is uh, significant because uh, the story or the, 
the way of talking about God sometimes within the Old Testament. I've heard Christians talk this way as well, um, very inaccurately, describing God as, as a violent, vindictive God. Um, God in the Old Testament is really, is really mean and warlike, and God in the New Testament is really like all peace, love, and harmony, right? And this is, of course, a false narrative. What we have here is God being purposeful. This region is not prepared for judgment. This region I have set aside for someone else. This region I have given to you. This region is full of sin and destruction. And what you have to know about God is that God is a God who also brings judgment. And a nation that walks in wickedness receives the judgment of God. And the way that God judges nations is he topples them. He sends foreign invaders and they invade and they destroy. This is how God works. And this is the word we have in scripture. And this is uh, very important because it helps us to understand what is happening here and why it is happening. You might remember that, that God comes to Abraham and, and all the way back when God promises Abraham this region here of, of the promise, the promised land, Canaan, he says, I'm going to keep your children enslaved for 400 years because the Amorites and the Canaanites <coughs> have not yet filled up their quota of sin. They haven't sinned enough yet to where I need to bring judgment upon them. And so God puts his own people in a position of danger and trial because it is not yet time to judge. Now we have to kind of wrestle with this because our cultural sensibilities have made us feel like this is not something that we should celebrate or talk about or understand or we should find some way to explain it away even while of course there are plenty other ways in which we uh, allow and endorse and fund destruction in the world but God's judgment is always just and God's judgment is always true and God's judgment is always good and he brings judgment on these two great nations so look at verse 26 Verse 26 of chapter 2, so I sent messengers ahead, this is Moses, I sent messengers ahead to the wilderness of Kedmoth to Sihon, who is the king of Heshbon, which we see right there, and I said, let me pass through. And we read in verse 30, skipping down, that Sihon, the king of Heshbon, would not let them pass through, but this is the reason. For the Lord your God had hardened his heart, made his heart obstinate, that he might give him into your hand this day. And that is what God does. He hands these people over to destruction. Og of Bashan in chapter 3. So look at your Bibles, chapter 3. You probably have some kind of uh, subheading there. Same things going on here. Then we turned and went up the way of Bashan. And Og, the king of Bashan, came out against us and all his people to battle. So they don't start the fight. um, But they do, as it were, finish it. Uh, We see in verse 11 this. This is important also because it gives us more historical context around what is happening in this region as the Israelites are pressing north. It says in verse 11, For only Og, the king of Bashan, was left of the remnant of the Rephaim, which is a cool name, I think. Sounds kind of, I don't know, scary. Behold, look, his bed was a bed of iron, which sounds uncomfortable, uh, is not... In Rabbath of the Ammonites, nine cubits was its length, four cubits was its breadth, according to the common cubit, which means nothing to us because we don't have common cubits, obviously. This is a big bed. This is the bed of a giant. And Rephaim is a really interesting word because it's a loan word. It actually, it actually is translated in the Bible sometimes as evil spirit. Um, but it is related to the region here. This is just kind of some like, some of you guys like boring historical stuff. 
And uh, I think it's exciting historical stuff, but anyway. Um, from this region here, and they spoke a language called Ugaritic. And in, Ugar- in Ugarit, the word Rephaim is a part of their worship. They had these undead evil kings that would show up and they would sacrifice things to these undead kings. And so here, uh, the Bible is indicating that not only is, is, is Sihon and Og, these, this whole section here, filled up with, with sort of evil. It isn't just like, these guys are not being nice guys. You know, this is like they're tied into the worship of demonic forces. They're tied into evil through and through. There is something more going on here. And so God is, is wiping this area clean so that his people can dwell in his land. And this, to me, is uh, something that should draw us to understand God at a very serious level. And this sense of dread, there is a sense of dread in the Bible for sin. So if I you sort of take this and you fast forward, you say, well, what about the New Testament? What about the New Testament? The end of Titus, you know what we're told? Or the end of Jude, I mean. We're told to be afraid to touch clothing that has touched somebody who is sinful. How interesting is that? Now, it isn't so much that if um, Liam, my token sinner, because he's right there, uh, Liam, this evil guy, and I touch his shirt I'm somehow going to be corrupted and, 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 and somehow become evil too. It's to say that evil is so dreadful. Because whenever we participate in sin of any kind, what, what happens is, is, is it sets up a barrier between us and God. And it begins to set us in the position where, where we deserve the kind of judgment that now evil Liam deserves. And none of you want to be like him, right? Right? And so there's this sense of dread that that sort of permeates the Bible. Like, man, sin is a real thing. It really kills relationships. It really destroys lives. It really kills people. And it really brings us to a sense where when we stand before God, the only thing that God can give to us is judgment. And so while I should reverence God and I should love God, I should have a serious dread of anything that would separate me from God because that puts me in this camp. And from beginning to end, whether we're talking about this text here or whether we're talking about Jesus who says, cast them out into utter darkness where there is weeping and gnashing of teeth. Whether we're talking about God in Deuteronomy or God in Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts, Romans, First and Second Corinthians, Galatians, and Ephesians. Go all the way through. God is the same, and He says, "Reverence Me. Experience the love that I have for you. Hang on to that love and let it drive you, and let it drive you to such an extent that you would see what the penalty is for sin. Because you probably memorized this before, but I don't know that we take it seriously enough. The wages of sin is what? Death." Do you treat sin that seriously? The wages of sin is death. And you should dread it. You should fear it. But it shouldn't be the thing that drives us. It should be the thing that we say, I don't want anything to do with that. We were in just this morning, and I was trying to make a point about, uh, about um, how demons function um, as we were talking about Mark. And I said, well, anybody ever seen an exorcist movie of some kind? I mean, you've seen something on TV or something like that. And immediately, where's Lisa? Where are you at? There's, and Lisa goes, 
No, I would never. I dread it. I would never see anything scary. That's like the reaction. I don't want anything to do with that because the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is what? Eternal life. Why would you have anything to do with death when you can have a gift of eternal life? And this is what God is pushing us to see. And this is why I love these stories out of Deuteronomy because they contain in them all of the truth that we see coming out of Jesus. All of the truth lived out. And we can see these stories as the warning tales they are. This is what's happening. Moses has got the people and he's saying, listen, let me remind you of what your fathers did. And that's what he's doing. Let me remind you of what we had to do as we marched forward and we destroyed God's enemies because they were full of sin and wickedness and possessions, and we had to lay waste to them. See and remember what happened there, because if you walk away from God, the wages of sin is death. But if you hold tight to God, if you put God first, he will pour everything into you. He will pour life and love and peace. We're going to read later on in in, in Deuteronomy the the list of God's blessings for, for keeping him first and walking with him. And it is insane how good God wants to be to you. And what he calls you to, to receive that gift, put him first. Put him first. What is that? Uh, You reminded me this morning. You had Matthew chapter 6, verse 33. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and what? All these things will be added unto you. Let me share a last story. This, is, this has been a story that's part of what's kind of driven the conviction for this, this whole series. It's my new favorite story for this week. Uh, this is from Exodus chapter 33. I love this story. So if you, if you want to find it, go ahead and find it. But, but I encourage you to read this because this is, this is now my sort of new exemplar for life. I love this story. Exodus chapter 33. Now Moses used to take this tent and he'd pitch it outside the camp far off. So this is before they built the tabernacle, if you know what I'm talking about here. Moses pitches this tent and he, he sets it far off and he calls this the tent of meeting. And it's not just meeting him. Which would be cool. I mean, Moses had the best beard in camp. You'd want to meet this guy, receive his blessing. It is the place where you meet God. And it says here that everyone who sought the Lord would go out, so out of the camp, and they'd go to the tent of meeting, which was outside the camp. And whenever Moses went up, and all the people would rise up, and each one would stand at the door of of their tent back in the camp. They would all stand up, and they would look, standing up in, in reverence. And in awe, because when Moses entered the tent, the pillar of cloud, that is the Shekinah glory of God, the glory and presence of the living God, so bright, so other, that he hides himself in this shimmering whiteness, because we cannot bear to look upon him as we can look upon one another's face. The presence of God would come down and stand at the entrance of the tent of the Lord, and the Lord would speak with Moses And when all the people saw the pillar of cloud standing at the entrance of the tent, all the people would rise up and they would worship where they were. Thus the Lord used to speak to Moses face to face as one speaks to a friend. This is my favorite part right here. When Moses turned again into the camp, so 
he goes back to the camp. His assistant, Joshua, son of Nun, would not depart from the tent. Joshua would not leave because he knew this was the place where God would come. And he would wait, wait for God to come. This is the place. He wouldn't leave. And I love that because to me that stands uh, as a convicting example of how, how deep is my passion for God? Is it, is it so deep that I'm willing to wait and wait and wait just to catch a glimpse of his glory? That I'll seek him with everything and wherever I find him, I won't depart from that place, but rather I will invest all of my time and my prayer and my energy because God is first and all I want is him. Above all loves, above all desires, above all passions, above all things, God. May it be said of me that wherever God would be found, there I would be too, and that I would not depart that place. As we come to a conclusion, if you need to meet God in a new way, and whatever that means for you, maybe it means you aren't a Christian, maybe it means you're a backslidden Christian, and maybe it means that you just need some prayer. Our elders are going to be here. I'll be here. We'd love to pray with you, um, to struggle with you. And I want to encourage all of us, though, all of you here today who are like, that's, that's not me, I, I want to encourage all of us to sort of take Moses or take Joshua here seriously and to take these, these things seriously and to, to pour into your prayer life today, into your family's prayer life today, that God would increase in you reverence and love and dread of sin, that we might be a people that God would be pleased to dwell with because that's the beginning of the story and that's the end of the story, that God wants to dwell with y'all, his people. Let's stand as we give him praise and honor and glory.